Hello and welcome to episode four of the Propagandopolis podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. James Vaughan of the University of Aberystwyth about British and American propaganda in the Middle East at the start of the Cold War. It's a really interesting subject about which James has immense expertise and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I hope you enjoy this episode. So James, thank you again for speaking with me today. Um, I usually ask my guests to you know, introduce themselves and, um, and, and then to do a little bit of scene setting. So, you know, just go ahead, um, go back as far as you think is necessary. Yeah, I'm, well, my name is Dr. James Bourne and I've been working at uh, the Department of International Politics in Aberystwyth for a long time ever. But I, I sort of came to the, to the department and to higher education very much from a PhD that focused on the study of propaganda. I've kind of moved gone off away from it a bit um, for a current project, but I've, I've still got it very much as one of my major interests. Um, and that PhD many years ago down in London was on an investigation of how the British and American governments went about the business of, call it what you will, propaganda, political warfare, psychological operations, cultural diplomacy in the Middle East and Cold War. I initially focused on the kind of um, Eisenhower um, uh, presidency or first term of the Eisenhower presidency from 52, 53 to 57 and then when it came to publish that as a book extended it um, backwards a bit and started in the immediate post-World War II period and took it through to after Suez um, so 1956, 1957 so that was my, my sort of big project that looked at, at propaganda in the Middle East and how the challenges of doing it from a Western perspective impacted upon its effectiveness, at least as I saw it, and as I'm sure you're familiar, um, measuring the effectiveness of propaganda, particularly when you're looking at it historically, is a pretty tricky business. Um, but there were certain uh, relatively straightforward conclusions you could draw about effectiveness without having to go into the problems of um, uh, sort of methodological issues regarding polling and, and evidence that we simply don't have for many of these places in the Middle East in that period. Um, it was simply a matter of looking at what was being done and some of the con conceptual and methodological flaws at the formative period, rather than trying to work out what was going on at the reception end of the of the um, of the process. So that was very much the, the the project, and that was published a while ago now. But occasionally, I do return to it, and I'm particularly interested in. Um, perhaps more the cultural elements of propaganda, what, what's become known in more recent years as kind of public diplomacy. It wasn't a term used at the time. They tended to prefer cultural diplomacy or cultural relations. But in the context of what I was looking at, the sort of things that were being done, at least overtly by, in Britain's case, the British Council, or to some perhaps extent the BBC as well, and which in America was handled rather differently because it was either housed in a more overtly kind of some state uh, national security establishment context, either the, the State Department were doing it, or they kind of left it to the private sector. And then most interestingly, they tried to manipulate the private sector through the intelligence services. And that's where you get some really interesting stuff going on. Yeah, well, from the very limited preliminary reading that I've done, it does seem like all sorts was uh, was happening in this period, which and, and most of your, if not all of your research is kind of strictly on the period between 1945 and, and 56, is it? That was 45 through to 57, the formative sort of decade of the Cold War and, and perhaps a bit more. So I, I didn't touch on the Second World War period itself, except in a couple of interesting cases where there was obvious ancestry and, and an organization that was functioning in the post-war era had been you know, initially perhaps created to, to fight either uh, the Nazi Germany or perhaps even more usually Mussolini's Italy. Um, which was more active as a kind of propaganda challenger to the British, particularly in places like Aden. Um, so in that late 1940s period, there, there's some quite interesting continuities, continuities and trajectories from the wartime period to the early Cold War period. But that tends to tail away a bit as you move into the 1950s and the, the kind of construction of very specialised Cold War national security establishments and intelligence apparatuses um, kind of take over from the older wartime um, machine, although a lot of personnel, interestingly, remains the same. Uh, the British particularly very keen on drawing upon the kind of people who'd done you know, great things for them in wartime, people like Seth and Delma, um, or Rafe Murray, perhaps, perhaps even you know, more specifically, um, and trying to kind of you know, wheel them out of semi-retirement and bring them back to, you know, you, you did the job for us in 1942, can you do the job against NASA in 56? Um, generally with less success in 56 than perhaps they'd enjoyed in wartime. So there are connections between the Second World War period and the Cold War period, obviously. But my primary focus was Cold War. Oh, okay. So, so you said a lot of the personnel from the from the wartime propaganda agencies were were kept on for the sort of post-war, early Cold War. So, was it more for more of a rebrand than a sort of total overhaul, or were there you know more substantial changes as well? 
the machine changes really substantially in both cases. And the major reason for that, and there's some interesting echoes here much later with the ending of the Cold War um, and when Clinton decides, uh, um, right, we don't need USIA anymore. Um, there'll be a, a dividend to the victory in the Cold War, which is that you don't need to spend as much money on, on this kind of operation. So the Union defeated. Great. Well, you see something a bit similar in 1945 with, with you know, treasuries um, and exchequers deciding that of all the things you've got to spend money on, particularly in Britain's case when they're effectively bankrupt, um, you know, if you're looking to make cuts, the propaganda areas are going to get it. So you know, the, the big engines of British wartime propaganda, obviously PWE, get cut. Um, and you see a consolidation of a much more stripped down and much cheaper uh, propaganda machine being rehoused primarily in the Foreign Office for the British. Obviously, the Army um, Armed Forces retain a, a, a role as well. Um, and then the intelligence services, you know, however, they then link up to the foreign policy and diplomatic establishment. And similar processes in, in America, the, the OSS, OWI, um, is, is you know, got rid of. And the huge wartime machine is really stripped back and initially rehoused in the State Department. And then under Eisenhower, um, after a really interesting committee of inquiry that sort of investigated America's Cold War propaganda, the so-called Jackson Committee, which met over 52-53, they create the United States Information Agency to handle overt international um, propaganda activity. And so there's a fairly fundamental change in the way propaganda at the international level is conducted from wartime to um, post-war into Cold War. But you, you do see a lot of the same people then, you know, bringing their expertise from one set of institutions and departments and, and simply being kind of rehoused and, and operating in similar ways, but through different bureaucratic structures. Okay, so um, in the sort of late 40s, so say 46 to, to 50, um, was there actually much sort of propaganda being disseminated in the Middle East? Or was it just sort of having all of these organizations reorganize themselves or, or rebranding themselves or overhauling themselves? Was there actually much yeah, you, happening? Yeah, because you've got, I mean, certainly there's an argument, and this is one of those kind of great historians' arguments about you know, why the Cold War starts and whose fault is it, you know, which my students got to get their teeth into every year. Um, but there's an interesting argument that's emerged in more recent decades that tries to get away from seeing the Cold War as a very narrowly defined sort of geostrategic slash ideological clash between the Soviet Union and the United States glaring each other over a divided Berlin, which obviously that's important. Um, but if you look at some of the very early Cold War clashes, um, in the big Berlin crisis, obviously, is 48. Before that, You've actually got the enunciation of the Truman Doctrine, you know, Truman saying we will stand up to you know, defend free peoples against the spread of hostile ideologies, obviously meaning communism in the Soviet Union. And he's doing that because of the situation in the Eastern Men. Um, he's looking at the British suddenly realizing they haven't got the money to prop up anti-communist forces in places like Greece and in places like Turkey. Um, you've also got a major crisis in 46 in Iran, where the Red Army is supposed to be pulling its troops out of the occupation of the north of Iran and doesn't do so. And the British and the Americans stand up to Stalin um, through uh, sort of you know, direct um, diplomatic mechanisms, but also through the new United Nations as well. So there's an argument that some of the really early deterioration of relations between East and West in the context of the Cold War is actually Middle Eastern focused. Um, north Africa as well is a big clash over Libya. Um, and the sort of, uh, who's going to benefit from the reallocation of Italian former Italian colonies? Um, Stalin wants a, a Mediterranean Mediterranean access through the Straits and or on North Africa, and the British uh, Foreign Office is very very determined to keep them out. Um, so you've got to have a British Russian state of Cold War almost before the Americans are involved, but that's very much evolving over kind of late forty five through forty six and forty seven. So the psychological dimensions of that clash, um, you know, the, the extension of the Cold War to the Middle East is going on you know, from almost as soon as the, the war is over, perhaps even while it's still going on. Um, so that, yeah, the Middle East is very much a, uh, a theatre of Cold War operations in the 1940s and 50s. But you probably don't see it really formalised and becoming really newsworthy as a theatre of Cold War operations until perhaps a decade later. And that's because of Soviet success. Um, it's only really in 54, 55 that the Soviet Union starts to build meaningfully constructive um, alliances and relationships with Arab states, particularly. 
and the Arab states that are gravitating into a position of more hostility towards the West, broadly defined, or perhaps you know, more narrowly, the British as colonial occupiers, as they see it. Um, so from 55 onwards, you've got a real sort of intensification of, of the um, uh, the Cold War clash in the Middle East. But it's a Cold War clash that is piggybacking in on existing hostilities between Western imperialism and increasingly Arab nationalism. So you've got different political forces, all of which have interesting psychological, cultural, diplomatic, and propaganda dimensions playing themselves out and intersecting with each other over the course of that transition from the 40s through into the middle of the 50s. Um, I was just going to ask, it might be a big ask, but um, would you be able to give us sort of a brief summary of how these friendly relations emerged between the Arab nations and the Soviet Union? Yeah, and it's interesting because the Soviet Union isn't consistent. Yeah, we tend to think the Soviet Union is very rigidly ideologically driven and dogmatic. Well, some, sometimes it is, but they were also quite prepared, you know, to, to sort of you know flip flop and U turn, uh, and or, or perhaps decide what the ideology meant and, and interpret it differently to suit kind of much more pragmatic rail policy considerations. So, I mean, initially, you know, famously, the, the Soviet Union was very uh, much um, in favour of the recognition of the state of Israel. Um, you know, it's, it's the Soviet Union that's kind of first at the, the UN to say, you know, yeah, official recognition of Israel, which is not the sort of thing you do if you're keen to make friends in the Arab world. Uh, and the Americans do that as well. Um, and it's intriguing that, you know, just a few years down the line, it's the Americans who are still being held you know, as, as the kind of villains of the peace by the Arab states. Well, the Soviet Union has got away with this scot-free because precisely it's flip-flopped in the kind of late years of Stalin's life to move towards a more anti-Zionist um, international perspective, and that of course intersects with some of the things that are going on in terms of the anti-Semitic paranoia that Stalin is infused with, um, you know, the Prague trials, Doctor's Plot, all, all the kind of stuff of the Yanucci movie, <laughs> The Death of Stalin. Um, so you see a, a deliberate shift in, in Soviet thinking to move towards a more pro-Arab stance, and that opens doors for them in terms of influence in the Middle East. And then you see as well with the death of Stalin and the emergence of Khrushchev a more ideologically flexible approach to, to dealing closely with non-communist states. There's an argument that the Soviet Union had missed quite a few opportunities um, to make life harder for the West. They, they don't get really involved, for example, with Mossadegh in, in that 51-53 period, um, culminating in the, the famous TP Ajax coup. And one of the reasons for that is that the Soviet Union seems to have regarded Mossadegh probably quite accurately as a kind of you know, bourgeois nationalist you know, democrat. Um, so they don't like him. Now, a few years down the line, that wouldn't have bothered Khrushchev. He would simply have seen it. Well, if we block, if we support him, it's going to make the West's life a lot harder. So you start to see Khrushchev doing that in the context of you know, effectively anti-communist governments. You know, and Nasser is no communist, but Khrushchev is quite prepared to, um, you know, to develop uh, Egypt as the major plank and foothold of Soviet influence in the Middle East from 1955 onwards, and in Syria as well. You know, they're they're, they're prepared that they may be thinking that there's more scope for a uh, a, a sort of powerful communist movement in Syria, which perhaps there is, but yeah, they're quite prepared to go with the Baathists as well. Um, yeah, uh, uh, and it's it's an interesting battle that's fought out in Syria in the middle of the 1950s when there is coup after coup after coup, and that's a 49 to 55 period with the West temporarily seeming to do quite well with its support of more nationalist military regimes like Shashakli's regime, and then the Soviets kind of springing back in with with the emergence of the kind of more leftist Baathist movement. Um, and then NASA kind of you know, feeding into this at various points. So the, the internal dynamics and politics of the Arab world and the Arab states are creating the potential as well for the Soviet Union almost being invited in. You know, they want arms, they want weapons. Um, the West, by and large, is not prepared to sell them to them in the extent and the kind of the quantities and the types of, of, of weaponry they want, because the West realizes the main target of those weapons are going to be pointed at is Israel. Um, and not northwards towards a potentially hostile Soviet Union. Um, whereas the Soviet Union can say, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll support you against these nasty Western imperialist Zionists. Yeah, yeah, come, come, come with us, you know, and have some trade deals and some nuclear collaboration while you're at it. So that's what I think provides the opportunity for the Soviet Union to make its move in a really big way into the Middle East, which kind of sort of emerges in public and sort of shocks Western statesmen in September 1955 when NASA signs famously the, the Czech um, Egyptian arms deal. And even NASA forgets to say Czechoslovakia occasionally because it's you know, obviously the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's interesting about the Soviet Union's initially pro-Israel stance because, you know, within sort of two decades or so, they would become probably the world's foremost 
publisher of anti-Israel propaganda, um, especially around the Six-Day War, but obviously I'm getting way ahead of myself there. Um, so around this time, the Arab nations are growing closer to the Soviet Union. Um, Britain and the US are getting a bit worried and they set up these propaganda agencies. Uh, who are they? Where are they based? What are they doing? What are their assigned tasks? Yeah, the the kind of campaigns that I found most interesting, um, which are ones that move away from the kind of day-to-day information work, which is important, you know, the, the communication of government policy through the embassies, information officers and things of that kind. Um, but there's a growing awareness, I think, particularly in the Middle East. I think this is a rule that applies in lots of other you know, contexts and case studies as well. But I think the Western propagandists become much more aware of this in the Middle East than perhaps other regions, is that they're unpopular. And therefore, if people realize that the material they're looking at or reading is from a Western propaganda source, or even just use use whatever euphemism you want, an information office or a press office, they're going to distrust it. Um, And that's perhaps not quite the same in, say, Japan, um, in terms of um, of post-war reconstruction or even Germany. You're able to operate to a degree with a lot more prestige, perhaps, as an American um, uh, public affairs officer, as they would have been called. Whereas in the, in the Middle East, partly because of the, the poisoning of the atmosphere, because of the uh, emergence of Israel and the West association with it, but there are plenty of other factors as well. Britain's occupation of the Suez Canal zone, for example. Um, there's a need to operate in a more clandestine manner, and they do that really well. Um, so they are able to create um, channels and mechanisms for inserting Western propaganda into the Arab public sphere in a way that uses proxies um, that hides the, the, the presence of the, of the Western hand, if you like, or Western voice. So there's a lot of funding of, of local Arab radio um, and a lot of creation of, of product. So you know, programming um, is made and then sort of sold on um, to radio stations in uh, whether it be Jordan or whether it be in Egypt or in Iraq particularly. Um, there is an extraordinarily effective campaign run in Britain by the Information Research Department, um, which really prioritizes targeting the Middle East in the, in the 1950s um, to get anti-communist Cold War-related material into the Arabic press, Arabic newspapers. And the extent to which they're successful now is quite astonishing. I, I found a stat in some of the IRB files where they do their auditing of how well they've done on a month-by-month basis. And you take it with a slight pinch of salt, because obviously they're sort of trying to show off to their masters for budgetary reasons. But there's only so much you can lie about this. But they're saying that they were getting from like 63 articles a month into the Jordanian press that were basically being written you know, by IRD, um, primarily written in English in London. But what they would then do is send them out initially to Egypt um, to be kind of tailored for the region by officials in the embassy. That then shifts to a new organization in Beirut, the Regional Information Office set up in 1953. So they're, they're extraordinarily effective at getting you know, Western messages into play, um, whether it's through newspapers, whether it's through radio, which is obviously the, the sort of high-tech media form of mass communication um, that, that's seen as a key battleground uh, in, the, in the middle of the 1950s. Um, and you, you, you see some even more creative kind of campaigns and programs that are being put in place as well. IRD is, is really creative at using... Uh, Islamic institutions as a mechanism of getting to you know, public opinion, the use of Friday sermons. So IRD has a sideline in actually writing sermons, which are then delivered in sort of brown paper, paper packages to Al-Azhar University in Cairo and, and elsewhere, and then distributed amongst the imams and clerics of the, of the Arab world for, for um, uh, delivery to their um, uh, congregations, for want of a better word, um, you know, across the region. Uh, and that's something that I, I suspect you know, very few people at the time were aware of. And it's only really in the, the period much more recently when IRD's files started to open up in the 1990s that the extent of the West and, and particularly Britain's infiltration of Arab um, public media and particularly that area of kind of the use of religion as a means of getting to, to the Arab world as well became uh, a bit more widely known. So there's some fascinating, fascinating campaigns you know, along those lines. And IRD is very much at the heart of it, operating alongside, obviously, the more um, sort of conventionally known intelligence services as well. And the uh, MI6 obviously have their assets. Some of these go back to the war period. The Arab, um, Arab News Agency based in Cairo, kind of sort of a sort of privatized offshoot of Reuters, um, which is basically the MI6 station in Egypt. 
uh, and, could, and operates as such until the Soviets tell NASA about it and the US arrests them all in 1956. Um, so you've got lots of interesting intel um, uh, operations that IRD links itself up to. Um, but IRD's ability to kind of operate you know, on its own, it doesn't need MI6 to, to produce material. What it needs is help to get it into the public domain. And that's where it's reliant either on links to um, key figures in the Arab world, political leaders, army officers, trade unionists, journalists, um, whatever it might be. Uh, and the, the, the bridge to get to them generally tends to be through the embassies. It I might see. be an intel officer in the embassy or it might be an information officer. Um, but that's how the IRD material that's kind of conceptualized and drafted in, in London gets um, uh, sort of translated, tailored, and then crucially um, filtered through into channels to the Arab world that most ordinary people seeing it are not going to think, hey, this comes from London. Um, and that's something that they're very effective at doing and really successful at. Yeah, I was going to ask. So there wasn't really much, you know, suspicion regarding the the provenance of of these, you know, radio stations and articles and and this just kind of influx of anti-communist propaganda. Most people just kind of took it at face value. Most people in you know Egypt. I think by majority of kind of ordinary consumers of news, yeah, I think there's as you move through, you start to see, uh, and particularly as, as tensions between the British and Arab states, particularly in Egypt, ratchet up. You know, Egyptian intelligence becomes more aware of what the British are doing and then tries to come, conduct their own sort of counter-propaganda effectively to, to expose this. Um, the, probably the, the best example of that would be Britain's most effective radio asset in the Middle East in Atemper Arabic radio broadcasting in the late 40s and early 50s, which is the Near East Arab Broadcasting Station, which initially is based in Jerusalem uh, and then gets moved out after 1948 because of the break, breakdown of the British mandate. And based on Cyprus, um, Shark al-Adna is the other name that, that's, that's used to, um, the terminology used to describe it. And that's basically an MI6 operation um, that uses, I think, I think the director of the station is a strange character called Ray Poston, who's a, know, an Anglican vicar or something. But all the, the staff are Arab technicians and Arab broadcasters, many of whom probably have no idea that they're actually working for MI6. But that's a really effective radio station because for the vast majority of its life, between, say, the ending of the Second World War until the British stuff it up in 1956, is it doesn't try to be too propagandistic. It's, it's kind of an entertainment station. Um, it's got the best singers and the best music, you know, and it's got sort of a very light approach um, to, to news. It doesn't harangue and lecture, um, which really sets it aside, as far as the British are concerned, from what the Americans are doing with a much more obviously propagandistic and obviously American state-run voice of America. Um, so people listen to that and they think, well, it's just like being lectured at by an American propagandist. People tune in to Shark Aladdin because they enjoy listening to it. And then every so often, the messages come through. Um, you know, the, the, the contacts with the news editorial boards there are such that if the British want to get a message through onto it, then they can. And that's a very effective operation for a while, but the Egyptians do you know, twig as to what it is. So you do see um, you know, attempts to kind of inform sort of Arab listeners um, that don't listen to that radio station. It's a British operation. But the interesting thing is, I think that message probably gets across and people still continue to listen to it, precisely because it's, it, it ranks as one of the most popular radio stations. The material, the quality of the entertainment, the sugar is, is good. Uh, and so people are kind of prepared to put up with the occasional pill. That's sustained until the Suez crisis, which really, where the British muck it up, precisely because they try and transform it into an official voice of the British state. And of course, as soon as they do that, the whole situation crumbles. The staff refuse to work for it. They go on strike. There are broadcasts from disaffected staff saying, don't listen to us. We're being held prisoners here. You know, and, and the whole thing is a catastrophe and it, it never really recovers. Um, it's also a political embarrassment back home. You've got people like, I think, Michael Foote and Barbara Castle getting wind about what the voice of Britain is being used to put across during the Suez crisis, which effectively becomes death threats to ordinary Arabs who don't rise up to overthrow NASA. Um, and they're kind of saying, is that really the kind of thing we want the British state doing? So it becomes some parliamentary embarrassment by that point as well. But before that, in the period through the, the first half of 1950, really interesting and effective operation. Yeah. So before everything sort of fell apart in you know, 1956 and then the, uh, the aftermath of that, uh, was the the main current was anti-communism? Was there not much in the way of sort of flagrantly pro-West stuff? Or was it all just kind of very, very subtle anti-communism? I think there's a debate about this. Obviously, there are institutional pressures from the kind of the Cold Warriors in IRD. And then the Americans as well are kind of pushing more in this direction because um, it's probably easier to get funding from Congress if you tell them you're doing it to fight communism. Um, if you try and tell an American congressman from Wyoming 
um, that you want to do. You know, our job is to persuade people about you know how great life is in 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 New York and and why we should all listen to the um, New York Symphony Orchestra. They're going to say, "Why are we wasting money on that? The private sector should do that." But there is a, you know, there are agencies within the British and American propaganda machine whose job precisely is to do the positive stuff, um, what would have been called national projection. And the British obviously have the BBC and the British Council as the main institutional channels for doing that kind of stuff, as well as the official information services. And that's the kind of stuff that it doesn't really matter if it's the official information services. If your if your message is basically, "Hey, look how great British democracy is and how the, how the House of Parliament works." Yeah, if anyone's genuinely interested and wants to listen to that, then they're not going to mind too much that it's coming from the official source. So I think the, the, the need for kind of more clandestine sort of subterfuge isn't quite so great in those kinds of areas. Um, where it becomes a bit more interesting is when you're in the business of the, the more kind of cultural diplomacy activities. Um, because again, A, you probably don't want people to think that your opera, your dancers, your writers and, and, and sort of theatrical performances are effectively state controlled because you're almost undermining your position of contrast with the Soviet Union if that becomes too obvious and overt. But at the same time, you've got to have them a bit state controlled, otherwise they wouldn't go out there in the first place. Um, so you end up with some quite interesting ways in which, um, to, uh, I think the Americans are probably better at this than the British, but probably because they've got a bit more funding. And the CIA is, 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 and State Department are very good at ensuring that um, cultural tours, um, whether it's in the arts, traditionally defined, or sport as well, is another really interesting arena of activity that they go for here. Um, that tours and individuals uh, you know, that are high prestige and popular um, you know, get out to the Middle East and, and they get briefed to make sure the right kind of messages are getting out there. So you've got a, a very deliberate attempt by USIA in the middle of the 1950s or State Department before that to use American celebrities when they can um, to get the right kind of messages out there. They find, you know, who are the, who are the popular film stars, you know, in the, the, you know, the people are going in the Middle East to watch the movies of? Um, Bing, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, the road movie, popular in the Middle East in this period. Um, people have a bit of a stereotype, I think, sometimes about the Middle East based on kind of an anti-Americanism from a rather later period and a more cultural conservative, you know, um, uh, sort of atmosphere that's sort of associated perhaps with the rise of political Islam a little bit later. But there's some fascinating reports from American cultural and public affairs officers in the 1940s talking about working in Baghdad. And so you go out in Baghdad on the night, you know, Saturday night in Baghdad, you just hear kind of Wild West movies and Benny Goodman swing music. You know, this, this is what people were doing and listening to and, and watching at the movies. Um, so there was a lot of scope for the Americans, particularly, perhaps more so than the British, to take advantage of that desire for American popular culture and to use that as another channel for kind of pushing positive messages about you know, the West and Western freedoms, Western democracy, um, and to use that as, a, again, a you know, Cold War weapon against the Soviet Union. Jazz becomes, there's a really good book, I don't know if, if you've had anyone talk about this in previous sessions, by Penny Von Eschen about the um, so-called jambassadors, um, the American jazz musicians who, who get funded by the State Department and USIA to tour the world. Um, and it's, it's brilliant, but it's called Satch, Satchmo Blows Up the World, uh, reference to Louis Armstrong's um, uh, leading role. But also people like Dizzy Gillespie is kind of key in this as well. And they go out to the Middle East quite a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there's a number of kind of subtext to it. One, one, one is that the Americans want to show that they've got original culture. Um, the kind of attack lines often used against them by the Soviet Union, but also quite interestingly, the French, who should technically be on the same side, but very often are not, um, is that the Americans are these kind of crude, they just turn up and fling their money about, they haven't got any real culture, not like the old Europeans. Or the, but the Americans are very keen to demonstrate that they have, and jazz is something that they really push in that direction. The other big advantage they've got using jazz um, is it's, it's a, an attempt to counter allegations of um, racism in the sort of pre-civil and civil rights era. So when the Soviet Union particularly is pointing quite accurately <laughs> to instances of American racism, um, which can be really damaging in the context of the, you know, the emerging post-colonial world. And the Americans are trying to make, make friends with people in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, um, to try and counter those images of American racism by the use of you know, celebrity um, African-Americans like Armstrong, like Gillespie, or, or sporting figures sometimes as well. Um, is something that they think could be really useful. Interesting debates about how successful that is. And, you know, I think it's successful to a degree, but only up to the point where the um, you know, black Americans themselves start to realize they're getting used. <laughs> and so we're not going to do this unless we actually get some progress back home. 
Um, so Armstrong ends up being quite sort of he's quite admirable in the way he actually kind of starts taking the Mickey a bit out of his role as a sort of, a, of a, as an informal American cultural ambassador. He releases a record in the sixties with Dave Brubeck, Dave Brubeck on the new ambassador. Contains a number of songs, sort of take, politely taking the Mickey out of the State Department's attempts to use jazz to kind of fight and win the Cold War. Um, but it is another you know important arena, and the fact that that, that is something that is, is done in the Middle East, I think, is interesting because it does confound one or two contemporary stereotypes about what the Middle East was like and what the culture of you know places like Iraq. Um, places like Egypt, places like Jordan, um, places like Syria, perhaps even more so places like Lebanon, which in that area was a real kind of playground. The best post you could get if you're a Western Democrat, you could go kind of skiing in the afternoon, swimming in the morning, and then the casinos, you know, for the rest of your time. Um, so it was a very different kind of cultural atmosphere um, in that 1950s period. Uh, and that's something I think that the West attempts to, to make use of. Um, but yeah, the extent to which it's successful or not, I think, is a, is a is a tricky one because you're you are you know seeing you know once the West is associated with those kinds of activities, but they're tying them into political programs and diplomatic policies that are unpopular. You run the risk of kind of tainting your kind of culture with it, and that I think perhaps indirectly does then feed in to the emergence of kind of more anti-American you know, uh, sort of cultural manifestations and expressions that come through a little bit later in the Middle East in the Cold War. Yeah, the whole sort of jazz as propaganda thing seems really interesting i've only sort of studied it really briefly but it kind of seems like it could be a decent episode uh, on its own um so the in the sort of period between you know the second world war and, and suez the main sort of countries that were targeted by these operations were egypt and lebanon and jordan um and you said something about libya i think a bit earlier Libya briefly, but that's mainly because of sort of strategic significance vis-a-vis the Cold War and, and the sort of air bases and Mediterranean access. In terms of the, the Cold War in the Arab world, in the by the time we're into the middle of the 90s, Egypt is the kingpin. Um, you know, NASA's emergence as the charismatic figure standing out against imperialism, um, you know, promoting this ideological ideology of pan-Arabism, which you know, interesting debates about the extent to which it was ever really pan-Arabism, the extent to which it was more about NASA using pan-Arabism to promote himself in Egypt um, is, is a good historical argument to have. But as a propaganda weapon, when, once NASA um, has consolidated his position in, in power, you know, it comes to power in the revolution in 1952, but it's probably 1954 that he really emerges from behind the scenes a bit as the dominant individual. Um, and sort of around about the same time, you know, he's beginning to realise the value of Egyptian state broadcasting assets, Radio Cairo, and they create this new radio program, the voice of the Arab, Sot al Arab, um, and use that as a, a means of communicating over the heads of the, the rulers of other Arab nations who might be inclined to be more pro-Western uh, and therefore are seen as in opposition to NASA's political agenda. So King Hussein of Jordan, um, for one, um, Nuri Said's Iraq, very pro-Western in this period as well. Um, so you've got and this is this is where the, sort of the, the the dynamics of the region interplay with the dynamics of the Cold War really fascinatingly because you've got the Cold War on the kind of global scale, you know, the West versus the East, you know, communism versus capitalism. Um, but you've also got what um, uh, scholars are called the Arab Cold War, which can kind of be understood in two ways. On one level, there's a big split between more pro-Western, more conservative, monarchical Arab states, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Iraq, and then the more radical, perhaps a bit socialistically inclined, um, certainly nationalist and anti-Western states, of which um, Nasser's Egypt emerges as the leader, but then also Ba'athist Syria. Um, Iraq very much goes you know, from being pro-Western into that camp after the 1958 revolution. And then you've got another interpretation of the Arab Cold War, which is that those radical Arab states, um, uh, Qasim's Iraq, um, Ba'athist Syria, Nasser's Egypt, end up hating each other, <laughs> you know, and end up trying to outdo each other in conducting propaganda wars. You know, so they never kind of create the kind of Arab unity that they, they talk to talk about. And so there's a lot of interesting kind of regional divisions and dynamics that the, the West can then, and, and indeed the Soviet Union, can utilize as the kind of handholds and footholds for you know, playing the game of, of kind of Cold War psychological operation. Yeah, um, th- this just came into my head and it might be a bit of a tangent, a bit sort of like pushing beyond uh, your, your field of research. But was there much in the way of sort of psychological operations around the time of the 1953 coup in Iran? Yeah, and then... I mean, I, I didn't focus on Iran in the book purely because of editorial word count <laughs> decisions. So I, I just, in order to make it a bit more manageable, 
sort of changed the title to um, Arab Middle East and, and, and kind of left the, the Iranian issue to one side. And it is something I want to go back to. Um, there's, there's a lot obviously been written now about the Iran coup. And the crucial, from certainly from a Western point of view, in terms of getting access to sources, was when the, um, the, the National Security Archive, George Washington University, um, I think the New York Times had actually managed to come up with a copy of the CIA's own case study of the, of the coup. Um, written by, oh, is it, it would have been um, Kermit Roosevelt's um, uh, sort of um, you know, uh, key operative in the region. Um, so what, when that came out, I think that was in the 90s, um, and there was an attempt by the CIA to shut it down. It was kind of you know, classified information, national security, and they, they lost the case, I think, because the Iranians had already published it. So the argument was it's already out in the public domain in one form or another. But once we had access to that, you can actually see um, some of the sort of psychological and propaganda dimensions of that operation. Um, the, the attempt to undermine the image of Mossadegh by presenting him as uh, some quite interesting kind of psychological buttons being pushed. It's kind of Islamic. Uh, as effeminate. He was a very emotional character who cried in public a lot. And then the West tried to use this to demonstrate that he was emotionally and sort of mentally unstable. Um, and we, we're using kind of clandestine propaganda sources in Iran to kind of spread that message. Um, the attempt to present Mossadegh as in the pocket of the Iranian communists, which he really wasn't. Um, I mean, if, if, if he ever was, it was probably because he was being driven there by the hostility that was being directed towards him by the West. Um, so there was some really interesting sort of psychological operations going on in support of the coup. Um, and then I suppose after that, and this, this isn't an area I've looked at in anywhere near as much detail, um, after that, it's more of a consolidation operation. And you're looking to project and bolster the, the reputation and the image and the prestige of, of the, the newly consolidated Shah's um, regime as we move into the sort of the rest of the 1950s and the 60s. One major mechanism for doing that and kind of incorporating a pro-Western Iran into a Middle Eastern um, sort of security network is the Baghdad Pact, which is the kind of Middle Eastern version of NATO, which is a very overly grand way of describing it because it never has any of the capabilities, or certainly in military terms, of, of, of the North Atlantic Treaty. Um, but the, the member states of that, um, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, um, uh, Iraq, uh, at least until 1958, and Britain, um, that has its own kind of propaganda networks, as well as a really interesting organization called the Counter Subversion Committee, which is tries, you know, really being pushed by the British. Harold Macmillan's at the heart of this to try and get these um, supposedly pro Western states to work together to counter the kind of anti Western material that we're seeing, possibly coming out of the Soviet Union, but perhaps even more importantly, coming out of the anti Western Arab states. So you use the Baghdad Pact countries as a supposedly you know, indigenous, homegrown voice against Arab radicalism uh, and, and anti-Westernism. And Iran is very much incorporated within that. Sorry, did you say it was called the Counter-Subversion Committee? Counter-Subversion Committee, yeah. Cool, I'll look um, Good book about this written by a PhD student of mine who, who tragically died far too young, Chikara Hashimoto, published a book with, was posthumously published with um, Edinburgh University Press. Um, it's called Twilight of Empire. It's about British um, counter-subversion and psychological operations in the Middle East from the 1950s through the 1960s. And he, he talks a lot about it. He had some really good sources on, particularly Turkey, actually. But that gave him sort of an interesting set of non-National Archives British insights into the working for the Baghdad Pact in that kind of crucial period from 55 through to the early 1960s. It's the organization that evolved into CENTO. Um, but that's after Iraq goes through its revolution and pulls out. You can't really call it the Baghdad Pact anymore if you're not allowed to meet in Baghdad anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um... Was there, was there much going on in, in Turkey at the time? Because I, I know Turkey published a lot of anti-communist propaganda. I wonder if you know the US or Britain had any hand in that or if it was all organic. Yeah, there's, there's a, and the, the, the Turks are generally not regarded as a problem by Western coal warriors in this period because there's a wonderful document I found and it just said, be very careful about doing anti-communist propaganda in Turkey. And I said, why? So it's because they'll get really offended that you don't think they're anti-communist enough to start with. Um, yeah, and there's a natural enmity um, towards the Soviet Union, you know, long-standing rivalries dating all the way back into the you know, Tsarist-Russian era, you know, the pressure of Tsarist imperialism on Turkey to get access through the Black Sea, through the Straits, you know, the claim on Constantinople that was actually briefly given over to the Russians in the First World War. Um, so you're not having to do a huge amount of persuasion to bring the Turks on board. You know, they're, they're sort of natural coal warriors. They sign up to NATO. Um, the Americans particularly are keen to use it as you know, military bases. That famously feeds into the Cuban Missile Crisis a decade later, doesn't it, with the 
the, the final deal of the Jupiter missiles in Turkey traded against the Soviet ones in Cuba. Um, so the Turks aren't that much of a problem. Um, even when there are issues with the Syrians, it's, it's the, the key ones in that early 1957 period when the Americans, are, there's this slightly haywire era when the British and the Americans seem to be trying to overthrow just about everyone they don't like. Um, so you've got fairly obviously operations against NASA, um, but also operations against the regime in Syria, Operation Straggle, um, and the Turks mobilization of so the Turkish troops on the border is kind of part of that. Um, but it all kind of collapses in the immediate aftermath of, of you know, the catastrophe of Suez and the British kind of you know, going about their business in a way that really kind of you know, undermines American attempts to be seen to be working with them too much. So the Americans kind of pull out a lot of these operations, certainly ones they're doing with the British. The British are trying to overthrow the Saudi Arabian government at one point, which of Americans get wind of that. They're not going to be happy at all. And that actually speaks to another really interesting dynamic, which is the tensions between the British and the Americans, um, you know, which... You know, everybody knows they come to a head with Eden and Eisenhower at Suez, but they've actually been present for a long time before that. Um, you can see it in Iran in that 1952 to 54 period. You can see it really interestingly in a war that almost everybody's forgotten about, fought between the British and the Saudis at the Burimi Oasis crisis over 1952 to 55. Um, and that's when the British are increasingly becoming aware that the Saudis, who they're seeing as their kind of small war enemy in this context, are basically being you know, backrolled by the Americans. Um, you know, where, where the Saudis getting their money from? Well, they're getting it from Aramco um, or their cooperation with Aramco. So there's some interesting tensions that are developing between um, uh, you know, what, the two sort of Western states that should nominally be really tied together and, and fighting the Cold War together. Um, you know, the, the ability, I think, of the Soviet Union to kind of perhaps work uh, a couple of, or at least seek to work a, a few kind of you know, dividing levers between them. Um, isn't as difficult perhaps in the Middle East as it might, as it certainly would have been in Europe. Um, possibly a sort of middle region where there's a bit, bit more scope for it is, is maybe in the Far East. But the Middle East is, is notoriously an area where the British see themselves as top dog and the Americans are kind of moving in in ways that the British don't like. And that creates some really interesting tensions and stresses on the so-called special relationship and always quite so special as we're told to believe. Yeah, so would there have been much formal cooperation between the British and American agencies at this time, given the the tensions you just uh, described, or, or you know, was it a bit more antagonistic, or? Yeah, it's a really interesting, really interesting relation because you've got the tensions and you know, patterns of cooperation and conflict going on all the time, and at the they're probably closest at the clandestine level, the sort of the, the Cold War national security establishments. There's a guy who goes over to Washington. Andrew Defty's written a really good book about this, um, about kind of IRD and its cooperation with the emerging US Cold War establishment. He's not talking specifically about the Middle East, um, but he you know, touches upon it. But Adam Watson is the IRD guy um, who goes over and, and creates all these amazingly close working relationships with people like Beadle Smith, um, uh, Alan Dulles, um, um, yeah, the, the, the real guys at the heart of the emerging American national security establishment and intelligence Cold War sort of fighting capability. Um, so at that kind of level, you've got a lot of close liaison and a lot of and, and you know, even someone like um, C.D. Jackson, who's Eisenhower's um, advisor on psychological warfare um, within the White House in the early, in the early period of his first, first term, um, has got all these amazingly close links with the Brits because he fought in North Africa with them. Um, so I think um, someone like Richard Crossman um, of the Labour left, um, all the way through to someone like Harold Macmillan um, on the sort of conservative sort of one nation right. You know, new CD, and we're mates with him, and we're prepared. You know, that was a, a really good channel for kind of even if it's outside of the normal channel for diplomatic communication. You know, exchanging ideas, exchanging views. There's a, there's a lot of liaison on broadcasting. Like the Americans are going to go about their international broadcasting this way, we don't have to do that, so we'll do it a different way. Um, the BBC emerges with a very different kind of persona or character in its Arabic service to, to what's being broadcast by the VOA. Um, so there's there's a lot of liaison and a lot of cooperation and some good relationships. But there are also tensions that are really produced by the political circumstances on the ground, um, particularly as the Americans realize how unpopular the British are and decide that they want to not necessarily be seen to be too close. And we'll just shuffle away from them a little bit, which, of course, then winds the British up because they see that as kind of a betrayal of Western interests. You, know, you should stick by us because we're all on the same team. There's, again, I, I can't remember which British ambassador it is. I think it's the guy in Saudi who says that the trouble with the Americans, he says, is their attitude towards us reminds me of those advertisements you see for bad breath pills. <laughs> um, and that's, 
I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And, and then when you get someone like John Foster Dulles coming in as Secretary of State, he's not a natural Anglophile. Um, doesn't get on with Eden at all as a kind of clash of personalities. Um, the scope for, for more tensions kind of increases accordingly. Um, you just got to be a bit careful not to overstate it. You know, it's easy to look at Suez and say, well, that's the, you know, the inevitable outcome of all this. But I, I, I think as much, you know, it, it's, it's the non-inevitable outcome of some very bad decisions that are taken by the British government in the course of the Suez crisis that didn't need to be taken. You know, I think there was plenty of scope for the Americans and the British to work together. And they were doing precisely that before Eden decides to go in cheap. Operation um, uh, Omega is the famous, famous one, which was a, a plan of, of jointly planned and concerted political warfare to be used against NASA. Almost not quite the same, but to sort of do a Mossadegh on him if need be. Um, and that's basically concocted by the State Department and the Foreign Office, um, Francis Russell and, and the US side, um, even in Shukra, a really interesting figure. Um, within the Foreign Office for the British. And they kind of come up with this three-phase operation to kind of persuade NASA, initially kind of by relatively friendly signals, incentivization. Yeah, if, you, if you come back to us, then there's trade deals, and maybe some arms sales, things like that. Um, then if you're still going off in a you know, direction we don't want, then you start to think maybe a little bit of economic pressure, a few sanctions, sanctions here and there. Um, you know, that's where the kind of decision on the Aswan Dam kind of thinking comes from, which triggers the Suez crisis. And then the third phase, which they never really get to, is... Um, effectively anachronistic term regime change. But that's all jointly planned and, and put together by the British and the Americans. And there's a, a sort of a counterfactual argument that if the British had played their cards a bit smarter and hadn't kind of run into the Suez crisis like a bull in the China shop, they might have been able, six months, 10 months down the line, take the Americans with them and actually get rid of NASA. But well, you know, that, the whole nature of the way they go, go about the business at Suez, you know, taking a military option that Eisenhower thinks is just completely counterproductive, mm -hmm. and he's right. Um, and then doing it in a way that is deceitful from the Americans as well. You know, all of the earlier cards and options that were on the table in terms of joint intelligence operations suddenly get removed. So, you know, Suez is a, is a major schism in that regard, but I don't think it's something that people should, re should ever regard as inevitable. It's a, it's a product of, you know, structural problems with the relationship, but also the agency of individuals making bad decisions and bad calls at key moments. And then, you know, there's a reason that Eden is not regarded as one of our greatest prime ministers. Although he's He's probably gone a few places up from the bottom in the last five, ten years or so, I suspect. So, so Suez happens, and then the sort of British propaganda, the sort of foreign propaganda apparatus completely changes. Uh, what does this actually look like? What changes and what effect does it sort of have on the reception of Britain in, in the Middle East and in Egypt, especially? It does. I think there's, a, again, a bit of a myth about Suez marking the kind of the end. It's, it's always used as, as this kind of pivotal moment in sort of decolonization, which is kind of weird in, in the first place because Egypt is never a colony. Um, it obviously exposes the limitations of British power. Yeah, and, and that's pretty much undeniable. You know, the, it's clear that the British cannot act unilaterally in a way that they've been able to do in the kind of, you know, maybe in the interwar years or, or in the 19th century, sort of gunboat diplomacy kind of stuff, without American permits. You know, that, that's a, you know, that's revealed very humiliatingly and embarrassingly to the world. But the fact that that's the case doesn't mean there's still not a lot of scope for the British to continue to, to maintain a presence and influence, particularly a slightly more subtle and a, and a, and a more cleverly constructed one. Um, so within a couple of years of Suez, you've got British paratroops going into Jordan. Um, you've got 1961 British troops going in to prop up Kuwait against potential invasion from um, the new nationalist government of Iraq. Um, and you've got ongoing clandestine intelligence wars being fought in the Arabian Peninsula, sort of Aden, um, um, and, and sort of intervention in the Yemen civil war and things like that. So the British don't go anywhere. <laughs> They're just a little bit cleverer about how they go about their business. You know, Macmillan is a cannier political operator than Eden. Um, it's not really until probably post-Six-Day War, 67, 68, that then you get the big Easter Suez decision. Um, which marks a significant removal, you know, deliberate pulling back of British power and influence from, um, yeah, from um, sort of its, its more traditional imperial era Middle Eastern and Far Eastern responsibilities. So you've still got quite a lot of, of activities going on. I mean, there's a big report, I think it's Charles Hill's report into the, the British overseas information services um, in the aftermath of Suez, which draws some very sensible conclusions. You know, he says, that, you know, what we should do is, is put more money and funding into the kind of more apolitical stuff. Um, we need to fund the BBC better. We need to fund the British Council better. But of course, that's a message that doesn't go down very well with politicians because the, 
BBC and the British Council are always the easiest ones to blame because they're slightly distant from you. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure ever really get the lessons ever ever really get learned, and I think that's probably a recurring British policy failure when it comes to the conduct of, of overseas of information work cultural relations. Is there's a um, on the one hand a very deliberate decision to distance government to some degree from institutions like the BBC and the British Council. And they're funded by government, a lot of the appointments are by government, but they're technically autonomous and they've got some editorial and policy freedom. But the fact that they then use that policy freedom to do things that government doesn't like at times creates kind of tensions in the relationship. So that it's, it's another kind of an interesting, some, both the strength and the weakness of the way in which the British have organised their ability to conduct these kind of operations simultaneously. Um, yeah, and it's a big distinction from where the Americans do it as well, um, where the Americans don't have a, you know, an equivalent in the British Council. There's no American Council, but there are private foundations, you know, philanthropists who will fund schools and things like that. Um, and one, one kind of wonders if the Americans have perhaps got a better system for doing that, but then one sort of wonders whether the Americans have simply got more opportunities to do that. They've got more oil billionaires capable of putting the money in, you know, in order to create Rockefeller foundations and things of that kind. Um, so I think the, the way the British do it is probably you know, the, the best way, given the sort of straightened financial circumstances that the post-war British state has. Um, and once you kind of tailor your activities to that, you can achieve some really quite you know, important things, particularly in the realms of English language teaching, um, educational exchanges, um, you know, just, uh, uh, English language schools that are created across the Middle East. And, and you know, I think probably have a more significant influence on people's attitudes than, and of course, this is very difficult to measure, than the, the, the stuff of more conventional propaganda. I think, you know, those, those kind of operations have more influence than in perhaps people who rise to power because they're obviously targeting the children of the, you know, what well, soon will become the elite. Um, and I think that's, you know, an often overlooked and underrated aspect of British cultural propaganda work in this period. So actually during the Suez conflict, I, well, I did a post this morning actually on a leaflet that was produced in, by a team in Cyprus, a British team in Cyprus, but it was never actually distributed. Um, do you know much about this, this sort of like little operation they had going in Cyprus? Apparently they, well, again, recruited some of the artists that they'd used during the Second World War. I don't know. The book to look at for that would probably be Bernard Ferguson's book, The Trumpet in the Hall. Ferguson, fascinating figure. He was a, a middle-ranking officer, brigadier, I think, um, who got put in charge of psychological warfare operations for Suez to, to support, support the military operations. Probably on the ground that no one else wanted to do it. I don't think he really wanted to do it either. Um, but the, the kind of few pages where he, in his memoir where he talks about that, I mean, they're hilarious because it's just a chapter of comic stuff-ups. Um, so they were working on all these leaflets, whether it's that particular leaflet, I don't know, but they were, they were doing a lot of leaflet production. And they, they managed to set the altometer or barometer pressure thing, uh, the height at which these things should get, go off to distribute them over a wide area wrong. So they just kind of bumped to the floor like three tons of paperwork that was smacking onto the head of any poor Egyptian, unfortunate enough to be underneath it. I think the main reason probably is that the RAF got really um, protective of its aircraft and wanted to use more for, for conventional bombing. Um, so, and they tried, they tried to get a voice aircraft, you know, loudspeakers to kind of fly around Egypt, you know, projecting messages, but then they stopped over in Aden on the way. There's only one in the British Air Force somewhere else. So they flew it in, stopped at Aden where someone nicked all the speakers. And so by the time it reached Cyprus, they didn't have an ability to have a voice aircraft. You know, I mean, there's loads of examples of this, you know, just error after error after error. And some of them are slightly comic. And you do, you end up feeling really sorry for Ferguson because they're not really his fault. Um, but it's a, it's a classic example of the sort of, in, in the military's finest hour when it comes to psychological support operations, put it that way. Yeah. Um, so you said that, you know, after Suez, British propaganda operations continued more or less as before. You know, they've been compromised a little bit, but they cont continued with their sort of underground anti-communist agitation. Um, did this move to different countries? I think you mentioned Kuwait and, and maybe uh, in Aden as well. Yeah, but I think that because Nasser's influence increases because of his political victory, it's a really good example of how you can, you know, Nasser is militarily absolutely thrashed at Suez, mainly by the Israelis. Um, but it's, it's not like he's doing any better against the British and the French. They're coming down the canal a bit slower, but it's the, it's the pressure from the Americans that forces the ceasefire. Um, but that military defeat, and it is a military defeat, is translated into this enormous political victory for him. He's the guy that stood up against the, you know, the Western invaders, um, stood up against the Israelis as well. Um, you know, no one's interested that his, his army's in smoking ruins in the Sinai, in the Sinai Desert. Yeah, he's able to project himself as the great Arab hero. So his influence um, you know, across the region increases you know, exponentially. So 
So if the British are looking to kind of counter him, then there's, you know, the situation has worsened in that regard. Um, I think they they probably, I mean, I think there's, there is definitely a handover of responsibility now to the, to the Americans. You can see that both in the way Eisenhower actually steps up after Suez and pronounces his doctrine, all, all presidents like a good doctrine. Um, Eisenhower ironically didn't. I mean, he hated the name Eisenhower doctrine being applied to it, but it was. And that was basically his version of the Truman doctrine, which is, you know, there's a vacuum of power. That was a propaganda mistake to say that because it really offended the Arabs who thought, no, we're here. Um, but it, with the removal or the diminution of British influence, um, there was a need for the Americans to stand up against anti-Western ideological and political forces. Um, what that translated to in practice was Eisenhower really looking to see who you could promote as an Arab leader against the rise of NASA. Um, and on, on a sort of small level, you can see, him, you know, they, they try and prop up the Lebanese Christians. The, the Marines go into Beirut in a big way in 1958. Um, but the main one was uh, King Saud, um, Saudi Arabia. So that was the, the state that they had obviously close oil industry connections to that was violently anti-communist. You know, this was one of those really in, in the post 9-11 era. Again, people look at this and it looks very, very different kind of political and, and, and psychological landscape. But for people like Eisenhower and Dulles, they looked at the sort of Wahhabist culture of, of Islamist Saudi Arabia and saw anti-communists who believed in a monotheistic religion and therefore were a bit like them. Um, so you've actually got you know, a lot of propaganda that's done about what uh, Islam and Christianity have in common. Um, and of course, Nasser doesn't really feed into that because he's much more of a secular Arab nationalist. So there's an ability to try, try and mobilize Islam on that kind of almost, almost like a Huntingtonian civilizational level, um, probably equally inaccurately, um, in order to kind of promote uh, bulwarks against NASA's influence in kind of key strategic areas. Um, and let's be honest, they're quite successful about that in Saudi Arabia. And the, the Saudis are very, very good because they've got a lot of money. There's a lot of Saudi bribery flying around the Middle East in this, in this period. Um, and they're quite enthusiastically prepared to take the fight to NASA. They're less successful in Iraq. Obviously, that's a, that's a British area of supposed expertise, and that ends disastrously in the overthrow of the pro-British regime and the fairly grisly end that befalls the individuals of that regime, Faisal II, and the most famously perhaps Nuri Saeed, the guy the British have been working with as a Middle Eastern strongman all the way back to Lawrence and Arabia days, who's kind of you know, dragged, mutilated through the streets of Baghdad in 1958. So Iraq is, is kind of a loss. Um, but there are plenty of other areas where the West maintains, you know, is, is successful in maintaining its position of influence and um, you know, sandbagging the supposedly rising tides of either Soviet influence or um, more radical Arab nationalist influence, you know, pretty effectively. A lot more effectively, I think, than perhaps the pessimists in Britain in the kind of Suez crisis era. You know, if you told them that the Middle East hadn't all gone, you know, Nasserite and Soviet in five years' time, they'd probably say, oh, it will, it will. But it doesn't. You know, and, and that, to some extent, is a, 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 a success for the psychological warriors. There are obviously other factors playing into it as well, with the more kind of conventional political, military, economic, um, diplomatic. Um, but it, it, it's, it's uh, I think, you know, an area perhaps where you look at the Western agency perhaps as more overly determining than perhaps it really is sometimes. You know, and, and you look at the expectation that Western statesmen have in 1956, the JIC guys, um, permanent undersecretary of the Foreign Office, Coke Patrick, and they kind of say, oh, the Soviet Union is going to take over. Well, the Soviet Union finds it just as difficult to maintain working relations with its Arab client states as the British ever have done. Um, you know, they fall out with NASA quite significantly um, and patch it up again, but then they seriously fall out with Sadat. You know, expels all the Soviet advisors, boots them out, goes and makes friends with Kissinger and Nixon, um, and ends up making peace with the Israelis. You know, that's a Soviet disaster. You know, and that happens within, what, Two and a bit decades of, of the, the high watermark, supposedly, of, of Suez and, and, and its aftermath. So I think there's a, a perhaps a, again, feeling a very British sense, I think, that Suez is this great disaster, which on one level it clearly is, but it doesn't necessarily have the, the enormous earth shattering consequences that people expected it to have on the kind of biggest sort of strategic picture level. Um, you know, the West and the Americans, particularly, and even post Vietnam, you know, Vietnam, again, I think is something that's slightly overrated in terms of it supposedly stopping the Americans throwing their weight around. Um, George Bush in 1991 after Gulf War, and he says we'd kick the Vietnam syndrome. Well, yeah, that's really only about, if, even if there was one, it was only about 15 years. And actually, if you look at what the Americans are doing in the interview, and Ronald Reagan was not a particularly kind of sit on your hands looking miserable with yourself kind of foreign policy president. So, you know, and he was quite prepared to send the bombers in to go after Gaddafi, you know. So 
I think there's a there's, there's an overstatement about you know Western sort of failures or reticence or ability to kind of throw its weight about in the Middle East after after the kind of failures of Suez. Um, and that's something that I think is a, a stereotype that doesn't sort of hold up to judgment. It might be something that helps us to explain why in the 21st century there are so many legacies or problematic legacies of Western intervention. Um, but those are, those are legacies precisely of intervention and, and ongoing Western influence rather than an absence of it. Absence of it. Yeah, true. Um, I, I kind of meant the question as in like Suez, given how you know flagrant and active imperialism it was, would have necessitated a, a, like a massive shift or rethink in the way that propaganda uh, sort of dissemination was was conducted. I think you said something that the, about how the existing propaganda networks, for the British at least, were you know more or less completely wiped out um, in in the sort of months surrounding Suez and obviously during. There's only so much they can do, I think, you know, because and there's a great, there's an ambassador, British ambassador in Syria called Trevor Evans, who I, I've got a lot of time for, partly because he ended up as a professor in the, the department that I'm currently working in. He ends up, when he retires from the Foreign Office, being the Woodrow Wilson Chair of International Politics and Arabs with the University. Um, and he's very much, a, he's an Arabist. You know, he's worked in Egypt a lot. He knows NASA. Um, then he goes and works with the with the Syrians and he gets on all right with the Ba'athists. And he's he's constantly trying to pr- persuade the Foreign Office in this kind of transitional period from kind of pre to post Suez that we could try and get a better working relationship with the Arabs and particularly with the Arab radicals. You know that we could we could fundamentally change our Middle Eastern policy in such a way that that you know we could have a more creative, constructive, productive, positive relationship with them. And it's 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 really nice that he thinks that, but he doesn't persuade anyone back in white. There's a line I think. I can't remember which of the British kind of you know, classic foreign office mandarins is, but he said, Mr. Evans's ideas, because he, he's talking about what, what I'm reminded of is the, the relationship one expects from one's undertaker. You know, his job is to bury you and, uh, bury you and you pay him for it. Um, and that is a, a mentality that they retain when it comes to dealing with NASA. They're obviously slightly chastened when it comes to the policy options that are available. But that doesn't necessarily change the, the, the propaganda ones. They need to be perhaps a little bit more careful about you know, what they're doing on an overt level. Um, and a lot of the black radio networks that have been established to attack NASA pre-Suez get sold off. They give a lot of them to the Americans. Um, there's a, there's a, some interesting files in the American archives about Selwyn Lloyd having kind of conversations with dollars about the kind of handing over of assets in terms of black radio. Um, so the, the radio stations that we kind of know about from Suez that are either based on Cyprus or in... Um, um, I think there's some in Aden as well, um, Voice of Justice, Voice of Free Egypt, these kinds of stations. I suspect that it's very difficult to actually nail down the precise, you know, which bits of kit are where and where they end up. But it's those kinds of, of MI6 run stations that are, are, are being transferred to the CIA um, and probably utilized against NASA by the Americans in the 1958 crisis. So, yeah, there's a handover of power a bit. And the British take a, you know, there's a very deliberate attempt to get out of the front line, I think. Um, to maintain your interest, because the British still have huge Middle Eastern interests that need defending, but to do it in, in a lower key way um, that doesn't involve you always being in the sort of frontline position of confrontation when, when crises come along. You see that manifested really obviously in 67, uh, the Six Day War, when Harold Wilson's Labour government's in power. And they are desperately keen, on, on one hand, to make sure British interests are protected, but to be seen to be part of a gang of nations doing it. They don't want to stand up. Uh, and be kind of isolated uh, against the you know, majority opinion in the Arab world. Um, and that, I think, is the lesson that's sort of drawn in the longer term across that kind of post-Suez decade. Yeah, well, moving forward a little bit in the decade, I know that you said earlier in the in the podcast, and I'm not sure if I'm getting beyond your area of expertise here, but you said there was also like a massive overhaul uh, following the Six-Day War. So what would that have you know looked like? So, you're getting a bit beyond bit beyond my period there. I mean, I, I, I did examine a PhD um, a couple of years ago, who someone who looked at the uh, British anti-NASA propaganda post-Suez, which is really interesting. Um, but even that one, I think, was focusing mainly on the on into the sixties. He wasn't going too far beyond the sixties and into the seventies. Um, so yeah, so that that's one. I, I don't have the sort of archival record of research competence to kind of pronounce much on that. And I, and, and, and because I've kind of shifted in terms of what my current projects are, I might not be completely up to speed with the, with the literature on that, although I do try and keep an eye out. Um, I, th- I think there was an attempt, certainly as you move into the, into the 60s, to try and 
sort of repackage you know Britain's overt influence in friendlier ways. You know, to 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 utilise the, the the mechanisms of cultural and pub, what we now call public diplomacy a bit more, and to get away from the position of you know overt antagonism that had characterised UK Egyptian relations um, in that kind of Suez era. Um, and there's, there's, there's some interesting gestures. That, I mean, Harold Bealey is appointed ambassador to Egypt when relations are restored um, in the middle of the 1960s, shortly before they're cut again in 1967. But there's a reason they sent Harold Bealey. And it's that Harold Bealey is the, from the, if you're an Israeli and, and you hear the word Harold Bealey, you probably start swearing, because he's the notorious pro-Arab advisor to Ernie Bevin in that kind of period where the Israelis saw the British as conspiring against them in the kind of end of the mandate period. So he's very much seen as a pro-Arab figure. So there's a very obvious reason. It's kind of a sort of propaganda by diplomatic appointment to send someone like that over to Egypt. And I think that's indicative of attempts to uh, avoid the kind of you know, real sort of antagonistic confrontational politics and diplomacy that perhaps you know, characterized Britain's approach to NASA um, at the overt level. But I, I, I still suspect that you, know, you start digging around in what the, the intelligence services and IRD are doing, you're going to find some interesting grey and black operations that are not so very different from the kind of things that they would have been doing in the middle of the 1950s. They still regard radical Arab nationalism as a threat to British interests that needs to be at the very least kind of mitigated, even if they're perhaps a bit less um, optimistic about the extent at which they can defeat it. You know, that kind of moment of kind of almost most kind of establishment panic where in 1956 the British establishment starts talking about this is 1940 and Dunkirk all over again. Turns out it is. Um, yeah, I think perhaps the lesson that it hasn't actually, you know, they, they lost at Suez and the world did not come to an end. You know, the you know, British economy didn't entirely collapse. <laughs> so I think they're perhaps a little bit more relaxed about um, you know, the, 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 the mechanisms by which NASA's influence can be curbed and curtailed once you're, you know, and NASA has its own failures, of course, by then as well. You know, the high watermark of NASA's success in the Middle East probably comes to an end around about 1961, when his attempt, you know, he, he'd gone slightly reluctantly into a, a union with Syria, the United Arab Republic. Well, the Syrians pull out of that, and that's seen as a great blow to NASA, gets himself embroiled in the Yemen civil war unsuccessfully, um, sort of dragged into sort of Egypt, Vietnam. And then, of course, in 1967, the humiliation of the defeat in six days by the Israelis. But NASA's kind of stars a bit on the wane in that decade, so he's perhaps not seen as quite the existential threat that the more kind of jumpy and panicky British statesmen have perhaps mistakenly seen him as in the 1950s. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, I'm sure there's loads that are still yet to be uncovered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, thanks so much, James, for speaking with me. It's been great. You know, there's so much I didn't know about here. And um, thanks again also for the extensive reading list. I've been uh, noting all these books down as as we've gone along. Um, It's been a great conversation. And thanks again for joining me. So that was Dr. James Vaughan speaking with me about British and American propaganda in the Cold War Middle East. He is a lecturer in international history at the University of Aberystwyth. And you can find James on Twitter at EquisonTheBuses. That's at E-Q-U-U-S-O-N-T-H-E-B-U-S-E-S. You can also find Propagandopolis on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Propagandopolis. And if you would like to support the podcast and the project as a whole, you can support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Propagandopolis. I hope you enjoyed this episode.